Happy Thursday, everybody, and welcome to episode 86 of the Snyder Cut. I am your host, Jeff Snyder, senior film reporter at Collider. And man, we we made some some waves last week with the last week's show, huh? I, I, the the Spider-Man stuff kind of blew up. I wasn't, um, I, I don't know that I'd say I wasn't expecting it, but it just, I don't know. I felt like some of it had kind of been out there. Um, you know, maybe from sources that were less than reputable or uh, whatever. Um, you know, I, I don't know why you guys put such such stock in what I say or when I say it or whatever, but uh, listen, I, I, I appreciate the love that, that the internet showed. Hopefully, this report turns out to be true. I, you know, I, I didn't have confirmation. I, I said, I'd take it with a grain of salt. Um, like I said, I, I think the Green Goblin stuff is is pretty accurate. As for the rest of the, the Sinister Six, who can say? Um, but let's just say I didn't get any angry phone calls from, from anybody either. Uh, what else happened this week? It was, it was like a busy week, wasn't it? Um, Let's start with Creed 3. How about that? So Jonathan Majors is in talks to play the villain, uh, or the villain, the antagonist, the guy who's going to be fighting Creed, obviously. And Michael B. Jordan is directing this himself. He's not going to have Sylvester Stallone in his corner for this movie. Um, I don't know if that was, you know, Michael's decision or, or, you know, the writer's. Or if Stallone's just like, you know what, kid, this is this is your story and your franchise now. You don't need me. I'd be very curious to know who sort of asked Stallone to, to step aside. Um, because, I, I mean, listen, the, the specter of Rocky will always hang over this franchise, right? So with Jonathan Majors, a very different kind of opponent than uh, really either of the first two. Like, right, the, the first film, I don't even remember who the fucking opponent was, um, but he was like a real fighter, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, same thing with number two. Um, Although Florian Montino also has, you know, some, some, some acting ambitions. And you know what? I thought he was good. I thought Montino was really good as Victor Drago. Um, the sequel didn't quite live up to that, the, the, you know, Kugler's first film, but I thought it was a worthy sequel. It was totally worthwhile. So Jonathan Majors, not a fighter. I mean, maybe he has some kind of fight experience, but uh, he's a Yale grad. He's, like a, he's a drama dude. Um, he's a great actor. You know, he's definitely going to be a better actor than either of these first two antagonists who, who Creed faced off with in the ring. You know, I, I think he will probably, you know, be a formidable physical challenge as well. Like he, he has the build, he's, he's a big guy. I don't, I don't think he's like cut like Michael B. Jordan was and without remorse, but you know, he, he brings a certain physicality to the table and obviously the, the dramatic chops. So I, I am, enthused about this casting choice and hope that everything works out. I, I know he also has to shoot Ant-Man 3, right? That, that never shot. Did it, Quantumania? So um, I don't know if he's like sneaking this in. Excuse me. And of course I don't have my water with me in front of me. Damn it. Uh, he, I, I don't know if he's sneaking Creed 3 in before he goes you know, to, to Ant-Man 3, which is gonna be a considerably longer shoot. You know, there was one interesting piece in the Deadline's original announcement about this, and I'm not sure, you know, whether it was just like a, a, a misprint sort of thing or what, but because they ended up deleting it. But basically in their story, they said that right now, you know, they'd have to see if the dates worked out for Creed 3 because he's also supposed to come back for season two of 
uh, Lovecraft Country. Now, here's the thing. Number one, Lovecraft Country has not been renewed yet. So at first I read that line as like a slip, like, okay, we knew that a writer's room had been assembled, but there was never any indication that it was, um, you know, the show had been greenlit or anything like that. But if, if they're, you know, working out dates, right? With Creed three and, and this, then clearly something is afoot. Next, uh, even though I didn't watch all of Lovecraft Country, I think I only watched two episodes. It was not for me. I'm, I'm not a Lovecraft kind of guy. Um, but from what I understand, spoiler alert, Jonathan Majors perishes his character. His, his, he dies at the end of season one. So it was like, are they doing something weird with season two where he could be playing a different character or flashbacks or prequel? I, I don't know uh, because it, doesn't, it didn't necessarily make sense that he would even come back for season two. And maybe that's why they deleted the line. Maybe it was just someone like assuming, oh yeah, he's, on, he's the star of Lovecraft Country, Lovecraft Country, we know is coming back he'll be back for season two, you know, maybe Mike Fleming didn't watch uh, season one, didn't know, you know, Jonathan Major's fate. I, I don't know what happened there, why that line was there to begin with and why it ended up delete, uh, being deleted. Um, but uh, certainly, certainly interesting, fun, fun to speculate on for fans of that show. Uh, like I said, I don't really care. I'm, I'm more invested in, in the Creed franchise and, and I like uh, this, this direction. I, I, I like this casting news for it. Um, in other like weird rumors, uh, I guess Production Weekly had a listing for Wedding Crashers 2 uh, and that it would be an, a, an HBO Max original. It, it had David Dobkin coming back with, you know, the main four cast, Vince Owen, uh, Isla Fisher and Rachel McAdams. Um, you know, I don't know how real this is yet. I mean, pr Production Weekly, you know, uh, puts things out into the ether, you know, very, very early when, you know, things are in pre-production. So, uh, you know, do I think that there will be a Wedding Crashers 2? Probably, you know, um, but I don't know that Warner Brothers Race Max are gonna like break the bank to, to bring back Vincent Owen, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I mean, they're just not what they once were, but at the same, I don't know, Owen Wilson's got Loki coming up. He, he's got a few uh, like movies, he's got that JLo movie. So I don't know, maybe, maybe that they would, they would pay those guys. I would imagine you'd have to pay them between 10 and 20 million practically to come back and do that movie. Um, same thing with like, you know, McAdams, like is McAdams, because that, that was the name that surprised me among all the returnees, so to speak. And again, Production Weekly doesn't confirm its information necessarily. It may have just said, Someone may have sent in a listing for Wedding Crashers 2 and they just put the, you know, the, the main cast of Wedding Crashers assuming, well, there's no sequel without these four. So it's not like Rachel McAdams is coming back and that's a done deal. I, I think she would be the hardest to convince. But um, yeah, you know, I, I imagine Isla Fisher would be down to, to come back and reprise her role as the, the stage five clinger. I really like Wedding Crashers. Wedding Crashers sort of hit right before I got to Hollywood. And when I did arrive in Los Angeles, every comedy script you know, the names could have been Jeff and Matt, but people still referred to the characters as Vince and Owen. So Vince and Owen go here and Vince and Owen do this. And, you know, it was, it's, it's that buddy comedy dynamic that every studio uh, and producer kind of wanted in, in the mid double zeros or whatever. God, am I that old? Holy shit. Uh, so yeah, stay tuned. I, I think this obviously would make a lot of sense for HBO Max. I think that streaming in general should be making more comedies. Uh, I mean, I want to go to the theater and laugh with 
you know, a big group of people. Uh, to me, that's that's the best way that comedies and horror movies are consumed. Uh, but I, you know, the box office is not what they what it like maybe once was for those comedies. I think people, you know, they want to see comic book movies and just like big VFX driven spectacle stuff on the, on the big screen. So movies, you know, big comedies, whether it's a Judd Apatow thing or, or Wedding Crashers 2, I think you will start to see them on streaming services. Um, speaking of streaming services, Miles Teller replacing Army Hammer in the offer. Now, this was one where I don't know if I mentioned it on this podcast or I think it was maybe a tweet on Insider Plus where I'd heard that Miles and uh, shall we say a, a frequent co-star of his nearly worked together uh, on another upcoming show, but that uh, she was going to get it and Miles was not. Um, obviously, that changed. You know, uh, and Miles did wind up getting the show. Uh, we will see if uh, she ends up in the show as well. I, I anticipate her being a part of it, but that is, you know, uh, very much speculation and, and rumor at this point. Uh, Miles is the only person cast in the show. He's going to play Al Rudley, um, who is the producer of The Godfather. This is all about the making of The Godfather. And I know that Paramount really wants to get out in front of that other, like Jake Gyllenhaal, Oscar Isaac Project, Francis, and The Godfather. Um, so, you know, as soon as the Army thing left, like they were, they started meeting with, you know, all, all the, the, the top young actors in town who they think could do this. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm not the world's biggest Godfather fan, but I, I have always appreciated the the lore that surrounded that film, having worked for, you know, Peter Bart and read all of his columns at Deadline. I know how instrumental he was in that production. And it sounds just like a really fascinating kind of endeavor. So I, I am down to check it out. I do think Miles is a huge upgrade over Army Hammer. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm mixed on, on Army Hammer uh, on the whole. Uh, and I know I defended him on this podcast early on before a lot more stuff started to come out about that whole situation. Um, I hope that he's, you know, getting the help that, that he needs. And I think that the time away from, from the industry is, is good for Army Hammer. I don't know that he is beyond, you know, making a comeback or something like that, because I don't think that anybody should be shamed for their sexual kinks, but obviously, you know, if, if certain things happened uh, that were alleged to have happened, uh, you know, there's some pretty problematic behavior in some of those uh, reports. Um, either way, Miles Teller, it, you know, to me it is one of the great actors of his generation. I do think that he uh, is, is both a better fit for this. Um, I mean, he, he's, he's an upgrade in terms of talent, but he's, I think he's also just a better fit for the character. He looks more like, like Al Ruddy. Um, he gives off more of a producer vibe than an army hammer who kind of seems like the kind of guy who would be cast in the Godfather, not the guy making the Godfather. Um, but by the way, odd story this week by TMZ. Uh, I think it was the, the same day that I put out that miles Teller story. TMZ reported that he got in a fight. He got punched in the face for some unpaid wedding bills in Hawaii. Wild. Uh, anyways, I, I hope miles and his punum are okay. Um, other TV stuff, Denai Guerrero, she is going to be in the Black Panther TV series, which is like a Wakanda set spinoff. Doesn't have a title yet, I don't believe. She's also going to be coming back for uh, Black Panther 2, although we kind of already knew that or expected it. But this news originated in, um, I think it was Hollywood Reporter's like 
100 power lawyers issue. And the lawyer was actually bragging, I mean, not quoted, of course, but, you know, these, these reporters are getting all this stuff directly from the lawyers or their <clears throat> assistants or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was basically like the lawyer bragging about this incredible deal that he made for uh, Denai Guerrero. And so, yeah, that, I mean, that, that checked out. I, I think that she is a, a great anchor for a Wakanda TV series, um, particularly if they don't bring back Letitia Wright as, as Shuri. I don't know if she's going to be a part of that show or not. Um, you know, there's got to be some, something going on in Black Panther 2 that's going to affect uh, the show. I don't know if Winston Duke could be a part of it. I, I just, you know, I think it's too early to say. Um, there was, what was the other thing that came out of that uh, power lawyers list? Oh, it was that Todd Phillips is co-writing Joker 2. I, I don't understand stories like that. Like, what do we think Todd Phillips has been doing since Joker came out? Like, I don't think, maybe he announced one other project, but it, I thought it was pretty clear that he was always writing Joker 2, just like he co-wrote the first film with Scott Silver. I, I suppose we don't know if Scott Silver is the other writer on the sequel, but I would assume that he is. Like, you know, why would you get rid of a writer who, who helped make you like a, a billion dollars or whatever the hell Joker grossed? Uh, although I guess we're going to talk about that at the end of the, the show when we get to the reviews portion. Directors just doing away with co-writers as uh, it bit someone in the ass this weekend, I would say. Sort of, you know, perspective. Uh, Joni Turner-Smith. Joni Turner-Smith is joining Noah Baumbach's White Noise with Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig. Uh, I would have been more excited about this announcement had I not seen Without Remorse, which did kind of damage Jodie Turner-Smith's stock in my eyes a little bit. I was just very, very excited about her coming off of Queen and, and Slim, and I just thought she was totally out of place in, um, in Without Remorse. Not necessarily her fault, you know, uh, but I just was, wasn't buying it at all. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis teaming up with Blumhouse to, to do the, the K. Scarpetta books for, by Patricia Cornwell. Hollywood's been trying to do K. Scar Scarpetta for fucking like a decade at least. Uh, I know, I think Angelina Jolie was doing it at one point. Um, I, I, I don't know if Jamie Lee is, is playing Scarpetta. I can't imagine that. Uh, I think she's just producing these. Maybe there's some kind of role in there for her. I don't know if K. Scarpetta has a mother or whatever. Listen, I love this kind of stuff. I love Alex Cross and Lincoln Rhyme. And I like, you know, detective fiction, airport, airport thrillers that you read on the plane. Uh, I love that kind of stuff, but I've never read a, a Scarpetta novel. I do have um, an unsub up there, the, the Meg Gardner series that I want to uh, dive into, which were in the works at CBS, I want to say. And I don't know what's happening with them. Um... Let's talk about T-Swift. Swifties rejoice. Taylor Swift is joining the cast of David O. Russell's new movie, which is just packed. I don't even know. Is there anyone who's not in this movie besides Leonardo DiCaprio? Like everyone is in this movie and now Taylor Swift is joining them. No details on the role. I don't know if she's going to be singing at all or if it's a big part or small part. It's probably a, a pretty small part. I think she only filmed a couple of days. Uh, so I don't know if it's a, a cameo or a significant supporting character who's really going to impact the plot. We still don't know really what that plot is. We don't really know what the title is. It's, it's technically untitled, though it has been rumored to be called Canterbury Glass. I think that's just a working title. I can't imagine that that'll be the title of that project. Um, I think David O. Russell's a really good director. Um, 
he hasn't made a movie since Joy in 2015, which was kind of surprising. Um, but I know this one took a while to come together. And I really liked, I, I enjoyed Joy. Uh, don't really have many thoughts on Taylor Swift as an actress, never saw Cats, never saw a lot of the stuff that, that she's done. But, um, you know, she's clearly pretty and, and talented and I'm sure she'll do just fine. Uh, everybody was very pumped about that though. And that, so that was like a tip, uh, that was like a, a blind on Deucemois. And then my pal Roger Friedman picked it up uh, and no one really, no one really jumped on it. And then, so then Deucemois like, po you know, posted something on Instagram saying that Roger had, had sort of revealed the, the subject of the blind item, who was Taylor Swift. And we jumped on it and kind of got all the credit. I mean, I, I made sure to credit both both Deucemois, both Deucemois and Chauvis 411. Um, but I was thrilled that the internet decided to, to pick up Collider's report because uh, that story did quite well. Um, Babylon, Damien Chazelle's new movie. He cast Max Minghella, Hot Off a Spiral, Flea. Samara Weaving, a whole bunch of other people. That, that, that is another movie with a really good cast. Kind of wild to think Margot Robbie and Samara Weaving are going to be in the same movie. Uh, since I think of Samara Weaving as like, you know, like a diet Margot Robbie or something. No offense, I, I didn't mean that. But uh, yeah, good, good cast. I'm trying to picture Flea in like a period movie. I, maybe he has, you know, that... that period old timey face that you know like he would have been like a movie star in the 30s or something flea max minghella i'm almost certain this was the role that they were looking at christopher abbott for for a while but uh you know christopher abbott i think he plays a very specific type um i think max minghella is a little bit softer and and um i don't know i, I don't know if he's playing a studio head i think that's what it is i i, I think that's what i heard about christopher abbott is that they were looking at him to play like a Louis B. Mayer type, maybe even Louis B. Mayer himself, I forget, but I bet you that's the role Max Minghella booked. Uh, all, all of the reporters this week had been keeping all the Babylon roles under wraps. Bones and all, Luca Guadagnino's new movie, uh, he added his Call Me By Your Name star, Michael Stuhlbarg, reteaming with Timothy Chalamet. So you've got a nice reunion of the three of them, but no Army Hammer, obviously. Uh, Andre Holland joined the cast and then David Gordon Green, which was really interesting. We don't often see David Gordon Green, the actor. And I'm kind of very curious, you know, how he fits into this. But you know what? I, I just realized the connection is there is that David Gordon Green was going to do Suspiria, right? And then Luca ended up doing Suspiria. So I wonder if that's how they, they, they know each other or something. Uh, and again, this is the cannibal movie starring Taylor Russell, who, who's a sweetheart. Uh, you know, we, we, we go way back, me and, me and Tay Tay. Uh, um, this was an interesting project. Anna Kendrick uh, starring in Chloe Acuna's movie, uh, Rodney and Cheryl, which is about Rodney Al Alcala, who is the grim sleeper. This guy is a, you know, a horrible serial killer. He terrorized Los Angeles for decades. But back in like, I think it was the 70s, could have been the 80s. I think it was the 70s. He was on like the dating game. Uh, and people were trying to like win a date with this guy. Or he was trying to win a date with somebody. I forget. I don't know. But I like this angle of this very weird, bizarre episode in like serial killer history. Um, and I, I always did like Anna Kendrick too. Uh, Kate Beckinsale, starring in Catherine Hardwick's Prisoner's Daughter. 
which sounded interesting. Uh, it's like a, about an ex-con, not Kate Beckinsale, but her, her father, who's trying to like reconnect with his daughter and I want to say granddaughter, maybe. I'm very curious who's going to be playing the older guy in that. But, it's, you know, I like Catherine Hardwick. I, I don't think that she's made a great movie in a while. Um, so I'm hoping that this is a, a return to form for her. And I hope it gives Kate Beckinsale a, a chance to do something uh, new and exciting and different. Um, there's a George Washington series package making the rounds from Antoine Fuqua and the team behind Emancipation. I, I, I admit that it's... Um, like I am surprised that we haven't gotten like a definitive George Washington movie or or series, considering that he you know is the the founding father uh, of this country and then our first president. Um, of course, you know the headline sort of notes why that is is because he he owned or you know, he he yeah he had three hundred enslaved people on his on his plantation him and Martha Washington. Uh, so you know it's it's tough to make a slave owner out to be this this grand hero but uh, i i think it's encouraging that this project hails from antoine fuqua and his emancipation collaborators and i'm sure that they will um do justice to both george washington and his legacy what he means to this country but also the the truth and and, and uh yeah you know the, the just what what it was like back then you know i don't think that they're going to sugarcoat it uh, or anything like that Sony picked up uh, Don Winslow's City on Fire crime trilogy. I am about to dive into this book this weekend, I believe. And it was like a big mid seven figure deal. I thought I muted this. Hold on. Let me mute the Slack again because it is just blowing up. Hold on. Okay, done. Sorry. I'm back. I'm back and I'm better than ever. Um, right. City on Fire. Big fan of Don Winslow. I think we talked about this last week. I would absolutely recommend Broken. Check out The Force. This guy is a hell of a writer. And this one is like about Irish and Italian crime warfare in, in fucking New England. It sounds awesome. Uh, so, so kudos to Sony for picking that up. I just hope that they actually fucking make it already. Like, I think Sony was also developing the 7-5, uh, which is another like, you know, bad cops kind of crime story and like nothing ever got off the ground. Uh, I don't know if that's because of like executive changes. That may have been a Mike DeLuca pickup back, you know, back in the day when he was at Sony. Um, I don't know. It just breaks my heart a little bit every time I see, you know, books that I love picked up and then they like, rather than like rushing them to the big screen, which, you know, I, I get it. You don't want to rush. You want to take your time, develop it and get the right script and get the right actors. But sometimes these things just fucking languish and it's like, you missed your window. Like everyone was excited about this and now, yeah. Uh, the Staircase added Sophie Turner. Antonio Campos just putting together a great cast for the show. Like, I, I do think that this could end up being the, the HBO's next great crime series like Nerevy's Town or The Night Of. Uh, again, to recap, Colin Firth, Tony Collette, Juliette Binoche, Rosemary DeWitt, Parker Posey, and now Sophie Turner returning to, uh, to the HBO family after Game of Thrones. Um, Jupiter's Legacy, Netflix... They're not using the word cancel. They haven't canceled it, uh, but they're basically turning it into like a one season show and then expanding the universe. So it's almost like become an anthology. So like season one is the Jupiter's legacy. Season two 
or season two, three, four, you know, if it's a hit, will be super crooks, which I guess ties into Jupiter's legacy somehow. It's all, it's all the, the Mark Miller universe over there. Um, 200 million is a lot of money to spend on anything. Like if you're spending it on fucking The Rock and Ryan Reynolds and Gal Gadot on Red Notice or Chris Evans and Ryan Gosling in The Gray Man, then you know what? It sounds like a great idea. Even Knives Out 2 and 3 at a, at a cost of 250 million or whatever, 230 million makes more sense to me than spending $200 million on a comic book series led by Josh Dumel, who as much as I you know, like, uh, is not a very good dramatic actor. Leslie Bibb, same thing. Um, you know, that's not based on IP. I mean, I get that you want to make Mark Miller happen and, and that he's had this great track record and success, you know, with, with Kingsman and Kick-Ass and, and Wanted, but, you know, th- those all had fan bases. I, I don't even know that Ju- Jupiter's Legacy did. Um, I mean, isn't it like a comic book that hasn't even like come out yet? Aren't they doing like a 12 issue series or something? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I just know that I, from, from the very first trailer, I had negative interest in watching that show. I wasn't going to watch a single second beyond the two and a half minutes in that trailer. And to me, yeah, I mean, that, that is not $200 million well spent, but you live, you live and you learn and uh, Super Crooks does sound a little bit better. Um, and I like Mark personally, so I'm down to give that show a chance, provided they get maybe a little bit better cast. Uh, Lee Tolan Krieger directing the first two episodes of the Green Lantern show on HBO Max. This guy's really kind of reinvented himself as a top TV director. He, he had done some, some feature work. I don't know if he'd done one or two features. Uh, neither one exactly took off. Uh, but you know what? You can make a killing doing doing these kind of TV stuff, particularly if you pick up like an executive producer credit, you know, for directing the pilot. Uh, speaking of TV stuff, the Sandman was in the news this week. Neil Gaiman, the creator, just hitting back at at, at so-called fans who had issues with you know the, the casting of non-binary and black actors. Like it is 2021. We got to wake up, people. We got to wake up. Like this is colorblind casting, gender blind cast, all that stuff. It's the new normal. So, so get used to it. Um, and I get that there are times and I'm sure that I, I've addressed them on this podcast where I'm like, really, like, does this need, does everything need to be this or that? But you know, when you have a character like death uh, and I haven't read uh, all of Sandman, but I'm quite familiar with, with the characters having done a lot of reporting on the show over the last year, starting with breaking the news about Tom Sturridge as, uh, as Dream. But with death, it's like, okay, so death is drawn with this ghostly pale visage to evoke, you know, a ghost-like imagery, you know, that, that is associated with death. It doesn't mean that the character is explicitly Caucasian or anything. I mean, these are like abstract embodiments of like these universal concepts, these timeless concepts, right? So I just don't get why people were upset that, that Kirby Howell Baptiste was, was cast as death. Um, I think she, she could do a really good job in that role. But the thing that really pissed me off was just like the non-binary stuff. There's this um, uh, performer, Mason Alexander Park, who is cast as the non-binary, he's a, a you know, they're a non-binary actor, cast as a non-binary character, Desire. 
Um, sorry, it's, it's easier when you're writing this stuff, you know, with the pronouns and everything than it is than it is speaking. So forgive me if I if I misspeak from time to time. But uh, it, like some of the fans, it, it was like they hadn't. It seemed to me, you know, uh, in, in researching things, that, that desire was explicitly written as non-binary, that, that no one gender could contain desire. Um, and so if the character is written that way, which seems like something of a landmark, uh, at, at least in, in popular comic books at, at the time, like, I, I think it's a great thing that, that we are now at a point where Neil Gaiman and his, you know, Netflix collaborators can cast a non-binary performer in that role. Um, yeah, like I, 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 you know, have, have had non-binary friends, non-binary colleagues, and I just feel like they're putting in the same work as everybody else, you know, for far fewer opportunities. And so when a, an opportunity like that does arise where there is a non-binary character, like, of course, you, 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 you have to do what's right and cast a, a non-binary actor. Like that just makes sense to me. And, and um, you know, I, I was glad to see that that story resonated with with people on, on Twitter. Uh, I'm sure it was helped by being shared by a couple folks involved with Sandman, but uh, I don't know, it's an issue near and dear to my heart because I definitely do have, you know, you're back if you're LGBTQIA plus, it's pride month, like, the fact that Neil Gaiman had, was seeing these kinds of responses, uh, it was just disheartening to me. So I, I did feel compelled to, to write something about it. And uh, um, thank you all for reading. Uh, the Academy announced that the Oscars in 2022 will be held on March 27th, which is later than normal, right? It's normally like end of February. It's not as late as it was this year, which is, you know, like mid to late April. Um, it still leaves three months where we're talking about, you know, old movies and stuff. I, I would have liked to see this show moved up to the beginning of March, but I get that the whole calendar has sort of been thrown off and they want to give uh, people time to see these movies. Um, the other thing that the Academy announced this week is that they will be sending fewer invites, which I think is a good thing. I have definitely been a, a critic over the last few years of like the seven to eight to 900 people being invited to the Academy. And, you know, a big part of that was the diversity push and wanting to up the numbers, the, the, the increase the number of, of people of color, increase the number of female voters, just to sort of balance the scales a lot. But of course, you know, there were a lot of white males invited too. So it, it didn't really balance them all that much. Um, I just, you know, I, I did see people making it into the Academy or after like one or two movies um, or just like very negligible contributions to film. Like maybe they are, you know, big on TV or just the entertainment industry in general. But when you think about their film career, it's like, really, this person's in the Academy? Uh, so, you know what, I have to applaud this move by the Academy to just sort of keep it a, things a little bit smaller and more exclusive this year. Uh, I, I think that they are well on their way to achieving the kind of parity that they that they wanted. But I also don't think you should just, you know, throw open the doors and admit anybody. Um, okay, We've, we're, we're now entering the, the, the review trailers and, and mailbag portion of the show. Real quick, I wanted to plug uh, my feature on Emma Stone's top 10 movies. I ended up going with um, La La Land at number one and Birdman was number two. And I believe the favorite was number three, right? Is that what I did? 
I can't, I honestly can't remember. Though, I mean, the, you know, she, she won for La La Land, was nominated for the other two movies. Um, but like Emma Stone's done a lot of good work. It was, um, you know, it was maybe tough to, to write a blurb and get passionate about something like Crazy Stupid Love, which I think she's, you know, quite good in and is a good movie. Um, but, you know, like, she, there aren't a lot of like bombs on, on her resume. There's a lot of like, fun movies, you know, whether it's The Rocker, Ghost of Girlfriends Past, or The House Bunny, or Super Bad, Easy A, Zombieland, like, I don't know, she, she, I just like Emma Stone, I think she's very, very likable, I liked Cruella, that, that, that didn't quite make the top 10 list for me, it might have been like top 12, um, and Cruella got some, some rough reviews, uh, I think that some of those were kind of unfair, um, yeah, like I said, I think last week, I, I, I liked just the style and the costumes, and I liked what Emma Stone was doing, I liked what Emma Thompson was doing, and I liked Joel Fry and Paul Walter Hauser, it's sort of, you know, the comic relief, so I, I do think that that movie is worth a look if you haven't seen it. Uh, and yeah, check out my Emma Stone top 10, you know, I, I want to get your choices. Um, trailers this week, I feel like there were a lot more trailers than I've written down here. We got a trailer this morning for Reminiscence from Lisa Joy. Send that bad boy to HBO Max. I think had HBO Max written all over it. Um, I, I mean, it just, it was a bunch of imagery like I'd seen before. Hugh Jackman can be very hit and miss for me on the big screen. I just got a bad feeling about this one. Um, you know, even though it had, I don't know. My, my, my boss said it had a strange days vibe to it. I don't think I'd go that far. But you know what, for, 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 for an HBO Max movie, it's added value. It's something that I will absolutely watch and I won't have to pay extra for. So how can I be mad at that? We got a trailer for The White Lotus, which actually looked really good. This is a new HBO Max limited series from Mike White about the staff of like a luxury resort uh, that caters you know, mostly to, to rich white people. And, and we certainly saw a lot of that entitlement and, and things like that. I mean, when you're on vacations shelling out thousands of dollars, you can't even imagine the entitlement. Think of how entitled we are just like regularly. And, and then when we go on vacation, it's, well, you know, bring me this. I want that. Uh, I could never be a staff member at a place like that. I think I would be fired very, very quickly. Um, but that looked good. That show looked good. Uh, the trailer I really wanted to point you guys to, because I know Collider didn't write it up. Um, I ended up Yesterday, I sort of had a little free time. And I was like, do I want to do this trailer or do I want to write up the Sandman thing? And ultimately, I, I did think that the, the Sandman thing was more important. But track down the trailer for Dinner in America. I really, really like this movie. It was at Sundance back in 2020. Uh, I showed it to my girl. I think I watched a screener with my girlfriend at the time. Uh, and she really liked it. And, she, and I didn't expect her to. Um, so I, I think this is the kind of movie that could surprise people. I really like both the, the lead performers. I want to say it's uh, Kyle Gallner and Emily Skeggs. Um, but it's just a very like punk rock movie. Uh, it could, it, that could be destined for like cult classic status. So, so track down that, that trail and see, you know, if it, if it speaks to you in any way. Um, reviews. Okay, we got a lot of time. We talked about Cruella already at yeah, yeah, two and a half stars out of four. Don't care about Conjuring 3. Not probably, you know, that, that's like an HBO Max thing. Um, okay, so we've got three things to discuss here. A Quiet Place Part 2. 
First of all, hats off to, to John Krasinski and Emily Blunt for bringing back the box office. We needed this. AMC, AMC and its stock price needed this. But the movie opened to like, I think it was 48 million for the three day and 57 million for the four day or something, but a good number. Uh, certainly a good number for, for you know, a, a genre movie. Um, like when I, I, I went to the theater and I had some really shitty pretzel bites. And I uh, sat next to some teenage girls who were laughing at inappropriate moments. But you know what? I was just thrilled to be there, really. Um, it was just great to just be looking up at this gigantic screen with, with awesome sound. And uh, I missed it. I, I definitely missed the theatrical experience and can't wait to find the right movie to do it again with. Probably going to be Fast 9. Um, as for the movie itself... I don't want to say it's terrible because it wasn't. I, I thought it was a decent sequel. Um, the problem is that it had no idea. And I think I saw like, you know, Devin Faraci uh, saying this who, uh, on Twitter. Um, you know, and I understand if you don't want to follow Devin, but uh, I, I still think he is capable of, um, you know, really smart insight. And I think he hit it on the head where it's just like, there's no idea in this movie. It, and, and, and that that is like, it's almost inexcusable for John Krasinski to have not brought back Beckenwoods. And, and I messaged the guys and they were very, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll keep that bet between us. Um, but I mean, they, they, I'll just say this. I was like, you guys know that this sequel missed you. And, and they, they were very diplomatic. They didn't say anything like that. They said, you know, John did a good job. We were just so glad the movie's doing well. Like, and, and, and that's where I'll leave it. But this movie missed Deckard Woods. And I don't know how much John Krasinski, you know, did with their original script. I, I don't know what their original scripts looked like and, and what John Krasinski did to it uh, the first time around. Um, but to me, that, that first film, I'm just like, those were the common elements, right? Um, or, or the, that is what changed, I meant. Is that the, that Beck and Woods weren't involved uh, in this beyond maybe like you know cursory EP credits? The first film had real emotion. Whether it was the opening scene with with the kid uh, getting snatched or a certain character's death scene at the end of the movie, if in case you haven't seen *The Quiet Place* for some reason, um, there was just it was a, it's a special movie and a special world that they created. And, and I wanted them to further explore that world. And I, and I just didn't just felt like a continuation, like either go back to the beginning and, and make this whole movie a prequel or like, let's see what is the next progression. Like this, this was just like a, it felt like an interstitial. It felt like very much the second movie in a trilogy which, you know, is like, they're treated like throwaways. It's like, oh, we'll wrap that up. We'll address that in part three. Part three is the big tr trilogy closer and, and blah, 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 blah. But like, I don't know. And just, there's, there was something very sorely lacking in this. And, and it wasn't the performances. The performances were all good. Uh, Millicent Simmons in particular was great. I like Kelly Murphy. Noah Jupe was good. Emily Blunt is the one who's kind of wasted. Like I thought with, with Krasinski sort of out of the picture that Emily Blunt would, would take over and this would be her movie, but this was very much the kid's movie. And frankly, Killian Murphy, I thought had more, had more screen time. So I don't know what the deal is with, with that. 
um, but it was frustrating. And, and I will say, I, I thought John did do a good job as a director. Like he milked the suspense. There were some really, really um, clever and, and creative sequences. But for me, like always, it comes back to the emotion and this movie just did not have it. Now, on the flip side, you've got Bo Burnham's uh, Netflix special, Inside, which, you know, if I'm gonna watch a comedy special, particularly a comedy special for an hour and a half, I wanna laugh. And I don't think I laughed once uh, during Bo Burnham's special. That said, that is a special that had ideas and that had emotions. And that's why I really did like it. I don't know that I'd use the M word because I have heard some uh, scenes people invoke the word masterpiece. I can see how some might think it is a masterpiece. I wouldn't go quite that far, but it was certainly very impressive. Just very well directed uh, and performed. And some of the, excuse me, some of Bo's songs were better than others. Um, and, and it's certainly too long. Uh, I think it was at least 15 minutes too long. Some people would have probably would have just gone like, just give me an hour. Uh, I, could, I could make the case for that being over an hour, maybe between 68 and 74 minutes. 87 minutes was too long. Um, so if, I, if I'm saying you could get away with 74 minutes and you're 87 minutes, you got to cut 13 minutes. Like there were 10 to 15 minutes, absolutely. It could have been left on the cutting floor. I think that, that, that it makes um, inside a lot tighter. But uh, yeah, you have to hand it to the guy for, for his, just his, his ingenuity. Like I, I just, I, I don't have that in me to be sitting at home alone in the house for a year and this is how I'm gonna spend my time working on this special. Uh, you know, I, I kind of like that instant gratification. So the idea of doing something over a period of months and not even knowing sort of what the final form is going to look like, it just seems uh, like he took a real risk as an artist. And I think that it paid off if, if you go by the reviews. Um, there were a lot of people watching that this weekend and, and you know, rightfully excited. So congrats to Bo Burnham. Well, I still have a tough time picturing as Larry Bird in the HBO Lakers series, but uh, you know what? <laughs> I'm done doubting this guy. He, 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 is, he, can, he can pretty much do anything. And then finally, Mayor of Easttown. There are Mayor, sorry, Mayor of Easttown spoilers. If you have not seen episode seven, stop watching this podcast right now because we are going to talk about it. Uh, we got the long, long guys outside, of course, always. Um, I thought it was great. I thought it was a great finale, even though I did call it basically from day one. Uh, I mean, I just never, you know, in episode six, when, when Billy sort of first confesses to everything, it just seemed all seemed too pat. Uh, and, and I think, you know, by the end of that episode, it sort of set you up for some kind of twist coming in, in episode seven. I never thought it was John Ross. Um, he, he was always like the, the best red herring, but from day one of this series, from the very first episode, I thought it was Ryan, just in the way that they shot him, uh, he was always being asked to leave the room. Like anytime you see him, it's always like, go upstairs and do your homework or, you know, the adults have to talk. And, um, you could see it. I thought it made sense. Like, like Inglesby and, and, and Craig Zobel, I, I think that they've really, this is like an, an achievement. Um, because they did drop clues and, and I think it, yeah, the shed thing 
maybe pops up out of nowhere. Like maybe they could have done a better job, like setting up the fact that this kid mows that guy's lawn or something. But the idea of like a kid, first of all, it was basically an accident. It wasn't like it was in cold blood. Uh, I think this was a kid who got scared and, and, you know, made it, made a terrible, tragic mistake. Um, but it, like, like to me, it made sense that he would do this to, to protect his parents' marriage uh, and, and that he would, you know, want to lie, you know, for his father to keep, to keep his parents together. I think a lot of this had to do, you know, a lot of it is about parents and, and guilt and, and things like that. But a, a lot of it had to do with Mare and Lori's relationship. Um, which, and, and, you know, as great as Kate Winslet has been throughout this entire show, Julianne Nicholson absolutely destroyed that last episode. Like she just came in and hit a home run to like the point where I think that she is an Emmy front runner, um, certainly going to get a nomination. Because uh, you, you understand why Lori would try to throw Mare off the center, why, why she wouldn't, you know, why she'd try to protect her kid. That, that hug at the end when Mare like comes into the house uh, and she just gives her son that one last hug because he's he's going into the system now. I mean, this li- this kid's life, it's not necessarily over. It's not like Aaron McMenamin's, but he is going to be changed for- forever. Uh, and-, and this will follow him around just like Mayor's, you know, fucking high school basketball shot followed her around. Um, and obviously, you know, you love the, the parallels, the-, the sort of symmetry in these two you know, mothers who, who have both lost uh, their sons to, to different extents for very different reasons. Um, but I, again, I just thought it was a beautiful portrait of, of, a, of a working class town. I thought it was a great whodunit that really did keep people guessing. I thought the performances were fantastic across the board. And I mean, if I'm HBO, I'm signing Inglesby to an overall deal or something like immediately. Craig Zobel too. He did a great job uh, directing this. I'm you know, honored to have had him as a guest on, on this podcast because obviously we, we don't have a lot of them. Um, and yeah, congratulations to everyone involved in, in Mayor of Easttown. I think it's, I do think it's it's probably the, the Emmy front runner this year. Um, and on that note, we can get to the, the mailbag stuff as we, as we wrap up this episode. Caltrick Pickens says, hey, Jeff. And by the way, I don't really read the, the mailbag questions uh, beforehand. So I just copy paste them, put them in the document, and we, we, we read them live on the air. So let's see what, what Keltrick says. He says, a more behind the scenes question for you. Holiday weekends like this past one aside, Sunday night going into Monday morning, what's your work price process like locking down the best exclusives collider like your most recent one for Spider-Man with so much competition from Deadline, Hollywood Reporter, The Rap Variety, and new guys popping out like, like the Illuminati, Murphy's Universe, and that hashtag show. Do you find it insulting that YouTubers like Grace Randolph calls herself a journalist? Um, listen, I, I'm not privy to, to Grace Randolph's inner workings. I, I have never really watched the show. I've seen, you know, obviously clips and, and things like that. Um, if she's a journalist, and I don't think she's a very good one. But I also don't want to be the kind of like chauvinistic, misogynistic asshole or whatever who's like, ah, oh, this woman calls herself a journalist. She can't call herself that. Like, can call yourself whatever you want. It doesn't make it necessarily so. Um, I don't think of Grace Randolph as a deadline or hot reporter or the rap variety or whatever as a, as a trusted source who I pick something up with blind. I would try to confirm her information just as I would 
uh, Illuminati or, or Murphy or, or the hashtag show. Now, now certainly those guys have um, decent track records. You know, I think it's, it's a big part of this though is they, they just stumble upon information, right? Which anybody can sort of stumble upon. Uh, and then they just put it out there without like vetting it. I mean, I know that they don't vet a lot of it because I know the people who vet these things. Um, so, I, you know, what is my work process like in locking down the best exclusives? I'm just trying to get two, two sources, man. I, I get the tip, right? That, that's one source. And then I just need someone else to, to back it up. Now with Spider-Man, that, that wasn't a scoopy story. I mean, I, I, if it was a story that I had confirmed, it would have been on the website. It would have been on collider.com. Instead, I thought it was more of a rumor. And I did try to confirm and I went back and forth with Sony for a while. They just don't want to comment on this kind of stuff. And, and I totally get it. It's their prerogative. You know, my issue with a lot of these kinds of things are, okay, you're telling me this is a secret and that's a secret. And we can't talk about this cameo. And I can't talk about this or that or this. And you know what? It's all going to be in the trailer. It's all going to be fucking in the marketing push. So that that's when it pisses me off. When it's like, Jeff, keep, keep it shut because we have to preserve the mystery of this movie. But we don't really have to preserve the mystery of the movie because we have to sell the mystery because that's what's going to get people to go see the movie. That's what drives me nuts. Um, you know, I, I totally get if it's Sony's prerogative. They don't want to reveal the Sinister Six or even that the Sinister Six are in the movie or... But then it's like, well, okay, well, why did you seemingly confirm Electro and Doc Ock? Like, is that because, excuse me, is that because it was a trade asking? Is, is like, is that what, it, you know, is it like, okay, well, we'll let you do these two, but it, only if you keep quiet on, on the rest. And that's a deal I would have made. I went to Sony and I said, okay, I've got these other names. If you can confirm even one of them, right? And I can just put it out on Clyde. If that's going to be a huge story, I'll, I'll stay quiet about the rest, but like, give me something. Like, negotiate with me. Even if it's like, you know what, Jeff, don't write about Spider-Man. Don't say anything about Spider-Man, but we're going to give you something big just to take care of you because you're, you're behaving yourself. Like that, I'm sorry, that's the fucking industry that I work in. It is quid pro quo. You want something, you got to give up something. Uh, and yeah, like, I couldn't get anyone from Sony on the phone. They don't want to talk. Okay, read read about it on the internet like everybody else. I, I don't know what else to say. Um, I, I have enormous respect for for the people at that studio, and, and I certainly understand wanting to keep things secret uh, for, from audiences and, and not give away the game. I, I am privy to a lot of inside information that I don't report because it is spoilery, and I'm not trying to ruin these movies for people. But clearly, there are thousands and thousands of people who want to know every little thing about Spider-Man. And so that that's, listen, it wasn't on the list of shit I was going to talk about last week. It came up organically talking about Craven the Hunter. And, and to be honest, you know, I think Frosty was, was mad about it. The fact that all these websites jump on what I say on this podcast and, and, you know, reap the traffic of it without, um, you know, and Collider didn't, but it's like, you know what, if, if I, if I had it cold, we would have written it first. You know, it, it, the, to me, a podcast is not an article. And what I say on this podcast is not like I'm writing something and then posting it to the internet where, you know, I'm going over every word. Like, this is just stream of consciousness shit. And I hope that you guys uh, take it that way. 
Moving on, Derek Walker Jr. says, I know Netflix is one of the top streaming providers. Is their way of doing business sustainable? As of now, they are $15 billion in debt. Most of their original movies aren't the best, and they spend a ton of money for the rights to movies that they lose a few months later. Uh, I think you're right, Derek. I don't, I don't think that their, their current model is completely sustainable. But then again, it's like, okay, what are we paying for Netflix? Some people are paying seven, eight bucks a month. Some people are paying, I don't know, 14, 15 bucks a month, depending on you know, whatever they have the HD, the multiple accounts, et cetera. Let's just call it 10 bucks, right? Let's call it 10 bucks for the sake of simple math. So there's 200 million subscribers, right? So 10 bucks a month from 200 million people is what, $2 billion a month? And that's 20, so that's 24 billion a year. And how much are they spending on content? 6 billion a year. Uh, and then maybe, I don't know, to, to, run all of Netflix with all the overhead and all that shit. I'm sure that's billions more, but they, like they, they still have to be turning some type of profit. I would imagine of, of a billion or two a year now. I, I, again, I'm not a, I, I don't know. I'm not a wall street guy. I'm not a fucking mathematician, but like you would, have, I would just have to think that there would be billions left at the end of the year. Uh, and that they would slow, and, and so maybe let's say they make one or two or even three billion. Let's say they make three billion in profit a year. Uh, that would take five years to pay off their, their 15 billion in debt. Um, I, I don't know if Netflix will ever pull itself out of debt uh, or if it's comfortable just you know operating in debt. You're right, Derek, something, it would seem that something has to give um, and I'm always curious when Apple or Amazon win, you know, a big auction or like, like at what point did Netflix tap out or like, this is too rich for our blood. Like at what point does it not make financial sense for Netflix? Would Netflix have rather spent 460 million on Knives Out 2 and 3 or 400 million or whatever the fuck it was, half a billion on the Lord of the Rings series that Amazon's doing? Like, I, I don't know. I don't even know what metrics are most important to uh, Netflix, Netflix metrics, that counts, that, that rhymes, I mean. um, but it's certainly an interesting question. And, uh, you know, I, I think Netflix is in a really good spot right now, uh, in the industry, but you know, we've seen how quickly things can change, obviously. Right. I, I might've said Warner brothers was in the best spot five years ago. And, and, and now look, now they're Warner brothers discovery with a new logo and everything. Um, that seems like it'll do it for, for the Snyder Cut this week. Let me just check the inbox to make sure nothing broke while we were out. Tiffany Haddish should play Flojo. I like that. I actually really like that. A Flojo biopic. Wow. Um, I did a, a diorama when I was in elementary school. I got like a, I bought a black Barbie. Uh, and dressed her up like Florence Griffith Joyner and everything. And um, yeah, it was one like the, the, it was like this project I was really proud of. So I, I am familiar with, with Flo Jo and her accomplishments. And uh, I think Tiffany Haddish, a little bit older than I might've expected uh, for this. Um, yeah, I might've expected uh, someone maybe in her early to mid twenties, but sure, uh, I'm down. Um, I'm, I'm excited to see a different side of, of Tiffany Haddish in, uh, in the card count, the Paul Schrader movie with Oscar Isaac. And then uh, I, I guess lastly, John Boyega has, has pulled out of the Netflix movie Rebel Ridge Mid-Shoot. That's Jeremy Salnay's movie, Family Reasons Are Cited. 
okay, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to, to clicking on that deadline article and finding out what happened there because I was really uh, looking forward to, to Rebel Rage and thought that could have been a great role for John Boyega. Anyways, that'll do it for the show this week. Thank you for watching. Uh, tune into some Tribeca Film Festival interviews we've got coming up. I, I got to speak to Isabel Furman from Orphan for her new movie, The Novice, today. And uh, tomorrow I get to talk to Elijah Wood for his new movie. So stay tuned. And I'm going to try to update our, our BOD utility listings. There's a lot of uh, fun stuff on BOD. I know you guys need to, to know how to cut through the, the clutter and, and find the best stuff. Um, follow me on Insider Plus. 20 bucks for a year's worth of tweets. You don't know what you're missing over there. Uh, so yeah, be sure to click that follow button and, and send a little uh, gift on, on PayPal or Venmo and or order a gift for a loved one. You know, on Father's Day coming up, uh, I'm on Cameo, super cheap on Cameo. Anyways, that's enough plugs for me. Thank you for watching this. Go outside. It's June. It's a beautiful day. Enjoy the summer, guys. Later.